All right, tonight we're going to talk about promises, and it's called unclaimed promises and unfinished sermons. And if you think about Jesus' first sermon, right in the beginning in Luke 4, verse 16, the way that I like to call it is, why does everyone get miracles but me? Have you ever asked that question? Why does everyone get miracles but me? So sometimes you're looking in your life and you think, have you ever asked that question? Sometimes we need to ask the question that Jesus was asking in this sermon. Maybe we look at other people and we think, well, I'm kind of envious. Seems like everything goes right for their life. You just look on Facebook and everything looks perfect with them. Or sometimes we get disappointed in God. Or it's not your expectations to ever have God do anything in your life. Sometimes we just want to quit. Or we have assumptions. Maybe it's assumptions inside of us that we think for the most part, it's just wrong that this happens to me. Well, honestly, I think it's a good question to ask. And it would be because Jesus was asking that question to us. And sometimes if something's done wrong, don't you like to think of what would it look like if we did it right? So you need to ask that question, what is he asking for from these people? So there's a failure in our life a lot of times to not ask God. I know last night I felt like I got in a lot of trouble with God because I just didn't ask. And there's reasons sometimes you just won't ask. Sometimes you really don't want to know. You're like, uh, it's the sin of omission, or you don't want to change. Have you ever had that where, God, you just stay over there, I'll stay here because I don't want to change? Or fear. Or maybe it's that thing of you want to change, but you feel like you can't change. Or worse than all this is no love of truth. If we don't have love of truth in our life, it will literally be where you will not ask those questions in life that will help you grow with the Lord. So won't or don't subject yourself to the Lord is a lot of times why people literally, they'll hear a message from the Lord, but they won't make it personal. Maybe we don't like his correction, but remember where it tells us that if he doesn't correct us, we're not his kid. That we're illegitimate if God doesn't bring correction on us. Or it's the wrong fear. Instead of having fear of the Lord, we have fear of correction. Like, I don't want to be corrected. Or fear of having to change. Fear of God making it hard for us. Fear of being tested by God. This is a strange one, but I see it so many times that some people fear that they're the one person on earth that can't receive from God. Like I'm just that special person out there that God does everything else for everyone else, but there's something wrong with me, and for some reason I can't receive from God. There's all kinds of different reasons that will make you not do what the Lord is pushing us to do in this sermon. And when the Lord spoke his first sermon, what I love about this is if someone looked at sermon notes, how good would they be? Would it sound fantastic? Well, you got to realize Luke 4 is just plain old sermon notes on Jesus' very first sermon that he preaches. I want to see if these sermon notes stand up and preach to us today. So if you think that you're that special one, that it won't work for you, sometimes that's a form of pride. Sometimes it's something in us where we think that God can't reach through to us for some reason. So I'm going to invite you to say that asking God is faith. Just saying, Lord, I'm asking you, show me. And so we're going to begin where Jesus started his ministry. Right in the beginning in Luke 4, verse 16, it says that Jesus came in the power of the Spirit and the news had spread. And in his sermon, he's going to cite references from the book of Isaiah and also First and Second Kings. In this chapter, as he begins to preach, Luke is going to tell you about this first thing but he tells you something very unusual that I want you to think about. It said that Jesus preached, did it say in the street corner? Did Jesus preach in the prisons? He was preaching in the synagogue. And so this chapter begins with, this is Jesus' sermon in the synagogue. Do you want me to let you know how important it is for you to get this message? In Luke 4 alone, it says Jesus preached in the synagogue. In this text, in verse 15, in verse 16, in verse 20, in verse 28, in verse 33, in verse 38, and verse 44, it says Jesus preached in the synagogue. Do you think he went to church? <laughs> or the Jewish form? It shows that Jesus was regular 
and he went to the synagogue. And how 44 ends this whole concept is it says, and he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So it didn't wear him out. But this is his first one. So verse 16, he came to Nazareth where he was brought up, and it was his hometown. There is something about preaching in your hometown. Brownwood for me. What is it like to preach in your hometown? It says, as was his custom, he entered the synagogue. So it's telling you he made a habit of being in the place of worship, being in the place of God. He was accustomed to being there. Well, the people of Nazareth, they all wanted to hear him. He's a hometown boy. He is famous. They had heard the reports of his preaching, and not only his preaching, but he did something that no one else was doing. He preached with power. So it says here, they were hearing the reports of what was taking place everywhere else. So they were very excited. He's going to be here. And they were eager to see what he would do in their midst. He was thinking, what will he do for us? He is a man of importance. So the anticipation and the excitement was high. You have to ask yourself, was his mother in the audience? (laughs) Was she there? What about his brothers? So they give him his text, his sermon. In verse 17, it says, They hand him the book of Isaiah. And he opened it, and he found a passage. It's a lot of fun when someone hands you a verse and says, Will you preach on this? That you just start out from wherever they start you. Well, it's a very unique text. And it's taken, Isaiah 61.1 is the verse that Jesus read to be able to preach his sermon here. Wow, these words, they stand through history. It says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. What a way to begin. I haven't seen many pastors stand up and say, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then he goes into what the Spirit of the Lord being upon you does. And it says, he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. I like the word gospel. It's my name in the Greek. It's very unique to think that here it says that you're made to preach the message to the poor people. You know, the poor sometimes are the most open. It says, he sent me to proclaim release to the captives. You know, one thing about what Jesus did, it's amazing to think he can take your worst problem, that you're captive, and he can deliver you. That he is made for captives. You know, you're looking at this, what he's saying here, or his text, and you realize it's people that have problems. It's people that need the Lord. And he's saying that he's enough for it. He's saying the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. And it says, in recovery of sight to the blind. Now, the interesting part about that little phrase, it's not in Isaiah 61.1, but it's in Luke. When he says that he's here to set captives free and to preach recovery of the sight to the blind, and it's not in the text of Isaiah 61.1, you're asking yourself, what is it? Well, you can tell one thing about this sermon. He's putting as much good into it as he can. I mean, he's loading the sermon up. And you can find the concept in Isaiah 42.7 that it says recovery of sight to the blind. Also, people say it the Septuagint, that it's the Greek version of it, that perhaps that they were using that. No one really knows But you know what? This is the time when more is better. I mean, one more extra promise. He's adding one more thing here that he's telling you that I can take someone that all they see is darkness and I can make them see. And if you study the Old Testament, I want you to look up how many blind people were healed in the Old Testament. Because my Jewish friends in Israel told me this is very significant, this verse here. Then he moves into something else. He says, recovery of sight to the blind, but he said, I also came to heal the brokenhearted. Aren't you glad that the Lord heals our emotions? That he cares about our heart being shattered? That when we're just literally at our wits end, he's telling you, I care about that too. Because he could just say, well, I'm going to heal you and I'm going to cause you to preach and those two things. But it's unusual to me that God takes care of us emotionally. As he moves from to heal the brokenhearted, he goes, and to set free those who are downtrodden and captives. So the purpose of the gospel is right here, that he's here to set us free if we're captive. A lot of people, they blend this in with Isaiah 58, 6, which is a verse on fasting. 
And it's talking about that the entire push is the ability to set oppressed people free, to really bring people out. And then he ends it with, verse 20, proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closes the book. Now, you might not think anything's unusual about that, that he says a great amount of promises just as fast as he can. He has one that's extra in there that probably came from the other place in Isaiah or from a different translation. It's the favorable year of the Lord. But did you know he's shutting the book for a reason? He hands it to the attendant. He sits down and everybody's looking at him. Have you ever looked at where Jesus stopped his sermon? He stops it. He doesn't finish the context of the verse. He shaves off the judgment part of that verse. He stops it with the good part. Jesus leaves off the second part of verse 2 because the second part says, and to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. But he sticks with the favorable year of the Lord. You know, he reminds you of the verse where Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn the world, but I came to save it. But there will come a time that he comes back as judge. It's two different comings. And at this point, he releases the favor upon the people. We look ahead for the time that justice falls upon the wicked. It's the time that justice will fall upon all of us. But it's unusual of Jesus preaching here that I found a phrase of the blind eyes seeing that he added to your promises. And I found a phrase of judgment that he didn't read. That he added one and he removed another because the time wasn't yet. So in reading this, I'm sure that these guys were very good at their scriptures. They knew exactly what he was doing. That he added to your promises and he removed another. It's a judgment. But you can say this, he structured his sermon to be powerfully full of promises. He structured it to make it where he was preaching the good news. Someone made a joke once. I don't know how people can take the good news and preach it so bad. (laughs) But he took out one and he added another. And we know from Revelation, don't do that. But here we stand with the word of God himself. And he can do what he wants. (laughs) And I'm just thankful that the Lord showed us goodness here. But I found one thing to be true. The one thing that your human flesh or nature will rebel against a lot of times is the goodness of God. Sometimes people have the hardest time with how good Jesus is. You know, we think, well, it'd be harder if it was, you know, if it was rough. But it's actually the goodness of God that a lot of times offends us. Well, he sits down, verse 21, and he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. It seems to me like a verse of scripture that stands up off the page and it says, this belongs to you. You know, I like that word today. I like the fact that he didn't just say, this is a scripture that has a lot to do with history. You know, a lot of people take their Bible and they try to make it a historical Christ, but not a present Christ. They make it where Jesus is historical But as soon as you say that Christ is living, he's among us, it makes us all nervous. And Jesus will come in and he will turn our lives upside down. So that word today says a lot because he's telling them, this is not just something I'm reading from the past. This is not future time in history. This happens while he speaks. While they hear, they find this out. So he links the verse to the present and with startling audacity. He asserts that he is the fulfillment. Well, that's easy for us to read. But he stood there and he said, this is fulfilled with me. That's a shocking statement that he's making. He links the verse even to himself. As it was written just for him, just for this moment in time, he stands up and he dares to assert himself. And verse 22, it causes a unique reaction from everyone. They start speaking very well of him. They're like, wow. Look at what gracious words are falling from his lips. This is beautiful. Actually, if you look at the verb in the Greek, the word for gracious words that are falling, it's a great verb to say that words fall from your lips. So they were saying that it was just kind of coming out of him, falling. 
And they were saying it's unique that he can preach like this and be so confident because isn't this Joseph's son? I mean, we know the family. We're not expecting a whole lot out of them. So listen to a sermon with the ears of the Nazarenes. Tonight, I want you to put on their ears and think for a minute what they felt like of, we've known this guy since he was a child. You know, is that what the Lord does? Does he use the least of us? Does he kind of have to make us be a fool for Christ? You know, he didn't grab for the most prestigious, the most eloquent. He said here, he came on earth. I don't know how he and God worked out his coming, but they did pick a town that wasn't very well known. They said he wasn't anything that was just beautiful to look at. Now, people think of that statement different ways. They say it could be because of the cross experience. That's what it's talking about. But he didn't give himself the body of, well, I'm going to use an old one, Victor Mature. A new one would be the body of, you know, he doesn't look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, he didn't give himself that look. He gave himself Joseph's son. And even the way that he was born is disputed. And it's like God uses sometimes the least that you would expect. You know, sometimes when I go into another country, it's not the one on stage. It's the one you would never expect will say the words to you that most changes your life. And that's what I see happening here. They're amazed at it. So you're looking at it much like they were of who is this guy. And I would have to say that for sure he's created a sermon out of a lot of promises. And he's chose these things to say this is what is available. In fact, it's proven to you today that this is fulfilled. So anointed to preach, being poor and preached to, captives and prisoners and proclaiming release and broken hearts healed and blind eyes recovering and the favorable year of the Lord, which is the year of Jubilee that you can look at in Leviticus 25.10. I'll tell you what we do a lot of times at this point. We go, oh, quick. We got to take everything that's on the list and make it spiritual miracles. We got to quickly make it where it's just all spiritual And that makes us feel more comfortable in our preaching. But I want you to notice the context of what he says because he's going to make it physical miracles that he's going to speak about. Watch where he goes from here. Sometimes as theologians, I think we do it because we're afraid. I know myself that to actually believe that God would do this among us, it scares you. It draws you into it. But Christ has never been one to make us comfortable. And this is his first sermon, and we can learn a lot from it. But with the promises, it reminds us of verses like 2 Peter 1.4. And it says, we've been granted precious and magnificent promises to partake of the divine nature and in order to escape corruption. Did you know the way that you'll keep from being corrupt in this world is you take hold of the promises. People who don't believe in the promises of God they actually get involved in corruption because we seem to think it's our own hands that do us good. And so he lays out the promises, but it takes God with us to make us successful. You know, without the promises, I don't escape. It's like experiencing problems in life without promises. You've got to embrace the promises of God, and that's what he thrusts forward here. Then Romans 4.17 is another great verse on promises. This one is the one that blows your mind when you think about it. It's telling you that the promises meant more to Abraham than the facts of why it wouldn't work. And honestly, that's the way that you have to accept your problems being fixed. That what God's word says means more to me than all the horrible facts about my life going wrong. You know, you will have a son meant more to Abraham than the impossibility of him being a hundred. And it would make more sense of having a 20-year-old bride. (laughs) But that's not how God did it. A hundred-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman. And it says that Abraham did not consider the facts, but he considered the promises. The promises will walk you out of serious problems in your life. I think of how many messes I have been in. I think of times I was smuggling Bibles into countries. There's no safety nets when you're going into places who detest the Word of God and the promises will walk you out. I can't imagine living life without them. 
Hebrews 11, 32 through 33. The writer says, Time will fail me if I tell of those who conquered kingdoms by faith, who performed acts of righteousness, and I like this, and who obtained the promises. Part of by faith is you obtain promises. Maybe your whole life is built on the promises of God that you've received. Maybe you've received, he is my promise of salvation, that your life is built on what you obtain from the Lord. But what's interesting here with what he's done with the promises, we're moving into something very unusual of how he's preaching it. And it's the unclaimed promises, promises not received. I want you to think of the body of Christ. Is there a possibility that the Lord is laying out these promises, that he really meant it when he said, the spirit of the Lord's upon me? And they're there, but they're unclaimed, or that we don't receive them. You know, some of you, my gosh, you would help anybody. You have that thing about you that you are just this great person and you cannot see a person in need without helping them. One thing about people that are great at helping people, sometimes they're very bad at receiving. Mm -hmm. This is what we're looking at here. It takes a receiver. It takes something that the power of the Lord is here for you. And Jesus is about to challenge them of whether they're going to receive what he's offering. And it's going to be bad on Judgment Day to realize that a lot of what we're held accountable for is what we didn't do. You know, we're all worried about, oh my gosh, do I cuss? (laughs) But sometimes I think our judgment will be more about what we don't do. And I'm looking at this here, and I'm saying it takes the promises of God, and he's challenging us to receive it. So, the Spirit of the Lord is upon God anointing to preach and the favorable year of the Lord. That's his context. Are you able to receive it? Getting as close as you can, but pulling from it. Being on the front and just saying, I want this. I want it. But we sit up at times and we just think, I want what God has. I have to get it. Yet you can have two people sitting next to each other and one will open their heart and receive and the other one won't get anything from it. It's all about how the soul of our heart is. You know, I look at it of how he's standing there offering those promises. You know, when you study anointing in the Bible, it's an odd word. We don't talk about it much in these days. But when you see it in Scripture, you see it in Mark 6, 13, and it's talking about anointing people with oil. Acts 19, 12 talks about handkerchiefs being anointed. And you look at that and you think, that's kind of weird. That's kind of flaky, you know. Just because people do it wrong doesn't mean that you can't do it right. You cannot let them steal from you what the Bible says. Because anointing means the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what it is. It's very holy in your life. That only God can anoint you to do what we have to do to get the gospel out to people who have never heard it. So he's standing there offering you promises. And he's asking, will you receive it? When you're confronted with the Spirit of God, do you pull back from it? Or do you make a withdrawal? Connect to Him. Connect to the anointing. And connect to the list of miracles that He's offering you. Now, I wanted to establish what I said first of what it's like, of what He's offering, in order to talk about what happens next. Because literally, what takes place next is going to make you forget everything I just said. (laughs) So I'm taking a minute and saying... He's making an offer. There's promises out there, but you're not going to like how it goes down. The bad thing is, you don't need to repeat it. So have you ever dreamed of thinking, oh, wow, if I ever preached in this certain place, what would I preach? You know, I was thinking, what a title. If you were preaching in a place you've never preached, and your title was, everyone gets miracles but you. Well, that's where we're going here. It's a version of this sermon. And I actually wrote it for that opportunity. What I would have liked to have seen happen when Jesus preached. Well, there's a little bit of a shift here. And Jesus does something unusual. He has been using the style of win friends and influence people. That's been his style. He has said something that would very much winning friends and influence. You hear the slow clap. The guy's talking about himself. He's a great guy. Verse 22, these are gracious words. 
And Jesus could have stopped it right here, and he could have basked in it. They were speaking well of him. You know, is it that word, honoring? Is it that word of he sees our hearts? But by eyesight, these people were very open to what he was saying. They were very receptive. He was reading pretty scriptures to them. Always get tickled. People like those kind of sermons. They like the bless me ones. They're thinking he's a hometown boy made good. With misty eyes, they've welcomed him. And he's been eloquent in his speech, and he has a message of hope. But now he shifts it. Why? Why does he shift it? At the very point of them marveling at him, at this point, he decides to rock the boat. And he says these words. Why would he change from gracious words to rocking the boat and saying, no doubt you will quote to me, a dentist will have a nice small. A doctor, heal thyself. No doubt you'll say these words to me. Is this not Joseph's son? As he begins to speak here, he said, no doubt you will say, a man will not be welcome in his own hometown. You know, Jesus didn't preach on God or man or duty, but he does a self-assertion of who he is. Whatever you do, don't make someone upset. Let's not have conflict. Conflict doesn't belong in the church. And the, what the church has done is we've managed to never get out of the boat because we're so afraid that we might offend someone. And he takes all those promises that he's just laid out for us, like a buffet, and he declares them as unclaimed promises, unclaimed blessings. And that's going to be the misery of it all if there's things that he's given us that we don't utilize. And so at this point, he does something that I can't imagine him doing. In the Old Testament, he's talking about his Bible, that's all he had, was that Israel got it all. Israel got all the promises. They had the father of the faith. They had the, the messianic lineage. God had favored them as the chosen people, and they knew it. There's something about the Jewish soul. They know God has favored them. And so he shows them that Israel got it all, but he swings his sermon to those outside of Israel. Why would you do that? When you're preaching all the promises, these people know they have the promises. Is that how we feel as Christians today? All the promises belong to us. And so with that heart in mind, this is where you see it. He says, no doubt, we've heard the miracles that you've done in Capernaum. We've heard it. Do more here. No fear of man, no people pleasing in Jesus. He was not afraid of people. To the degree you have the opinions of man is what you don't have the opinions of God. To the degree that you size up your audience and think, I'm going to please them, is to that size that you haven't asked God, what do you want said? And this is where he does something. He switches to what I would call a John the Baptist style sermon. <laughs> he switches the whole thing. And we know that the miracles are for the Jews. We know it. But he preaches on the miracles to the non-Jews. And he said the prophet Elijah was not sent to a Jew. Miracles are for the Jews, but Jesus is pointing out a contradiction. He said they're for the chosen, but Elijah was not sent to them. And so he starts what he's going to do next in his sermon. This is where it'd be good to get up and leave. <laughs> But in verse 25 and 26, he talks about Elijah and the widow woman. And he says she's from the land of Sidon. And he talks about that she needed something, provision, and that Elijah was sent to her, listen to this, in the land of Sidon, in other words, to a foreign country. He was sent to her a woman. He was sent to her a widow. That makes you mad all the way around. At least in a religious context, that makes you angry. A Jew sent to a Gentile. Why not Israel? And then he doesn't leave it alone there. He doesn't just leave it. He was sent to someone else. He says, weren't there many starving widows in Israel? I mean, that's really taking them yeah. and rubbing their nose in it. Because he's made the point, this is a Jew sent to the Jews, but God sent him out of the country. And it was a woman, a poor one, and she gets what they're not getting. You know, sometimes I think we never compare ourselves to the stories and the miracles in the Bible. 
It's a dangerous thing as believers if you don't ask questions. C.S. Lewis put it so well when he says that a lot of times the biggest distraction is, it's about the time we're about to ask a question, we get distracted by the news or something like that. If you ever read uh, screw tape letters. But what you're seeing here is asking questions is very important. Have you ever asked the question, is the book of Acts even possible today? I mean, it does end abruptly. Are we supposed to be continuing on? Are these things for us? Why not Israel? Why not us? There's many starving. Why is Jesus doing this to them? Why is he provoking them? It was going really good. Why did this woman get a financial miracle, but you don't? Well, that really rubs it in when you consider the Jewish context of this. Why are there other mission teams more successful? Other youth groups exploding? Why are people seeing miracles and you're not? Why are other churches getting miracles and you're seeing nothing? Well, he's not finished. You think, well, maybe I misunderstood that point. It just kind of went over my head. But he's not through. He hits verse 27. And he talks about Elisha and Naaman. This isn't just an Elijah problem. Elisha did it too. And he's saying, why does this guy get a healing but the Jews don't? Why do you not get a healing, but Naaman gets one? You know who Naaman is. He's a Syrian. They are not well loved by the Jews. That is like picking your worst enemy and saying, why did they get healed and not you? What is Jesus doing here? I mean, sometimes we just don't read this scripture. You know, it's like potty training a dog here. You take their nose and rub it in there. He is rubbing their nose in it. Why? I think of Jesus when he was 12 and he was studying with the Pharisees and you wondered if he asked the same question himself, why? There were many sick lepers. He does it again. He could have just said, for some reason, Elisha had an opening that day and went and healed a foreigner. But he doesn't. He says he skipped all the Jews. He skipped all the people just like you and he went to someone else. Are you feeling what they're feeling? There were many sick lepers in Israel. Why did he choose not to heal them? The context. Jesus' sermon is the miracle of provision, the miracle of healing. He uses basic things of health and someone starving. It's like he's accusing them. He's preaching on miracles and he's tormenting them with them. There is no bait being used now. He has gone from baiting the hook in the beginning to fishing with an unbaited hook. And God dangles the miracles in front of them. And you've got to do a review in your mind to think, what is he doing here? What always got to me was I was thinking about it when I would read this passage. I would think about, did Jesus do miracles to Gentiles? Did he give any to them? And what was great faith? And you remember the centurion in Matthew 8, 7 through 10. He kind of got pushed in because they said, he's a good man. He's a Roman centurion. He's always been good to the Jews. Let's do a favor and include him in. And Jesus declared him the greatest faith in all Israel. And in fact, he kind of looked around and said, this man has greater faith. So he does that number with them. But then the Syrophoenician lady, remember what he did to her? He tells her, no, I'm not called to your race. I'm called to Israel. Even though there's a verse in Isaiah that says he's a lot to the Gentiles, he tells that lady, no to the miracles. We looked into that last week. But she keeps going after Jesus, and he tells her, no, the dogs don't get miracles. And remember, the lady refuses to be offended, refuses to let him get under her skin, because she could have easily said, those Jews, my gosh, who could lie? And go home and tell all her relatives, but did you know if you get offended, you won't get a miracle? She did not let herself get offended. And then she comes up with kind of a comical little answer. It's okay, Lord, even the puppies, they can get a crumb. In other words, Lord, just a crumb from you is enough to solve any problem I have, to deliver anything that I have wrong with me. I'm not going to puff myself up and make myself arrogant. I'm going to lower myself. If you call me a dog, I'm going to say I'm a puppy. If you say I can't have a meal, I'll take a crumb. And Jesus loves her witty answer, and he delivers her daughter. But what I see screaming at me here in the scripture is, Jesus tells the Jews, we give it to the Gentiles. 
He tells the Gentiles, we give it to the Jews. And I made myself a note in my Bible, unless I make you mad, I haven't preached. Because we see the sweet Jesus, but what he does is he takes you high to drop you low. (laughs) Isn't this the craziest thing to see? What he does to us in our life? He's getting at us. You know, it's like that thing where he offends our mind. He's going to offend your mind till he gets to your heart. And he takes both groups and he tells them it's the other group. Look, Jesus points out ones who did obtain the promises. He offers the smorgasbord of miracles. Then he raises up an irony about it. He's saying, here's all the miracles. And then he creates irony. Your English teacher would like this. He says that he's the one who can do it. And then he raises a question. He says, now is the time for miracles. But there's no miracles that are going to take place here. He poses a contradiction. You know what he's trying to do? He's trying to get you to ponder thoughts you've never thought before. Because the way we're living our life and the hardness of our heart is what's keeping us away from the presence of the Lord. He's challenging your thinking. He's challenging how you're doing things. He's trying to get something from you. And you've got to determine what he wants. So he does irony, questions, contradictions. Most of the time you would hope a sermon would clear up these things. And he creates them. So the second part of his sermon is why everyone gets a miracle and you don't. So let's make it personal. Why do I not? You know, when you look at the details of these Gentiles, honestly, these Gentiles weren't very impressive. You think of the widow with Elijah. She was just planning on dying. That's not a lot of faith. Weren't there some people in Israel that at least met that qualification? I'm just going to die. Naaman, he was so prideful. He wasn't even very clever initially, but he had really good people around him. Sometimes it's not that you're so smart, you just have good people around you. He had good advisors. In fact, he was insulted. He was like, look who I am. Look at all the stuff I brought. I mean, I'm rich. And this guy does not even come out and meet me. Elisha does not even come out for me. I'm insulted. And so he sends word out and he says, go dip yourself in a dirty river. And he goes, look, we got rivers back home. At least ours are clean. Why would you tell me a dirty river? Because the Lord's insulting your pride. You've got to get past dirty rivers you got to get past that you expect a certain amount of respect just because you walked in. you got to get past that with Jesus. He wants you to open your heart to what he's saying. You know, the widow's heart changed. She made Elijah the cake first. You know, Naaman's heart changed. Read the story. It's funny. He didn't want a dirty river. At least there's water in a dirty river. What did Naaman take back home with him? bags of dirt. One day I was looking at it and I thought a man who would not get in a dirty river suddenly became willing to take dirt bags from Israel back home so he could bow down and worship God. You see some things about them. We start out with miracles and we're not impressive. Does anyone deserve a miracle? No. But it's meant for a heart change. You know, prophets tell you the truth whether you like it or not. Are you a prophet in the pulpit? Are you a people pleaser? Are you just trying to get your influence? You know, he's irritating and provoking, and he's Jesus. And he switched styles on him. The worst part is he didn't start out negative all the way through. That's why I told you, you're going to forget the first part. And honestly, it felt like heresy to him. You're like, this is close to heresy. He rubs in the Jewish Gentile. He rubs the race issue in. This would be like me standing up and being called to your church and saying, well, miracles happen in every other place, but not in your denomination. I mean, we all take a collective breath and think, oh, you've got to be kidding. They're not going to take up an offering for you. But he's not interested in that. He's interested in your heart, purposely antagonizing. How come there are other miracles flowing in other churches and none in your church? That is a beautiful question to ask from the pulpit. I'll tell you the story that happened. We had some Mormons, and they were coming around. You know, you're asking yourself, oh, I don't want to get entangled in a theological debate with them. But if you knew Kevin, he was on the radio years back. 
And Kevin is just, he loves people. So he invited the Mormons over. The Mormons were living with his boss. So he invited us over too with the Mormons. And I was like, I'm not really wanting to do a debate on it, even though there's quite a bit to debate in that field, especially if you've seen some of the, the ideals of what they believe. But with the four of us together, we decided to do what Jesus did. And we just opened our hearts and we started telling the Mormons miracle after miracle after miracle. They were stunned. I said, what are you seeing in your church? Like we would ask them, what are you seeing? They fell apart. They were like, are these stories you've seen with your own eyes? You know, somebody told me, I don't believe your stories. And I said, come with me. Come on the field. Come see what we've seen among the poor. And we always think, is it us that's doing it? No, it's because some of these poverty people have faith. They actually believe the Bible works. You remember Jim Caviezel? He just finished the Passion of Christ. They're flying him into Mexico for a promotion. And he gets off the plane. And instead of having confetti and autographs and everything they want, in Mexico they brought him their sick. And I thought about it. Caviezel said, I'm just an actor. I can't heal anybody. And we're either going to say Jesus Christ is alive and well, or we're going to say we're just an actor. We're just faking this whole thing. That's why when I was young and I didn't know if I believed in the existence of the Lord, I wanted to go somewhere where there were no TVs, no power of suggestion, and see if God could get me out of there alive. And I told you, what I learned and what I saw, it's not for your faith. You've got to get with God and find out. And this is what we began as we shared with them miracles in the mission field and our families, things that we've seen. We were taking a page out of Jesus' own text right here. Their hearts began to open up, and we quit talking doctrine, and we started talking the reality of Jesus Christ and the difference he makes in their life. You know, Kevin had it better than we did. I saw it as a debate, and he saw it as an opportunity to share what meant the most to us. You know, people tell me, you shouldn't look at miracles. You shouldn't talk on them. I'm saying Jesus did. It was his text. It was the point he was making. It was the subject of his sermon. Verse 24, Jesus says these words, Really, I say to you, no prophet's welcome in his hometown. Do we have a prophet among us? He caused some things to happen in my heart. When I read Jesus, he does something to me. I was talking to a Muslim once, right after 9-11, and I said, I'd hate for you to lose your eternity because you've just done what your culture said. If you'll read Jesus' words, he speaks like no man. It's like it's the genius of the Bible. Like if I was thinking I would start a religion, I sure wouldn't have done it the way Jesus did. He tried to drive you away. <laughs> I mean, he didn't do it in any way that you could possibly understand. And by the time I'm through talking with this Muslim because it's time for our team to leave, he was begging me with all his heart for me to give him a Bible. You know, I told you that thing that happened. One of our team members stuck their foot in the subway door and jammed it while we're out there digging for a Bible. And the last shot is this white woman throwing a Bible, and it comes flying in the subway. And all the New Yorkers were like, what just took place? Because they had just had the bombing of the Trade Center, and they saw the exchange. It's because of Jesus. People that are not prophets are welcomed. If someone's not a prophet, they get the place of honor, they're appreciated, and they're invited back. Not with prophets. Jesus was kind to the humble heart, but he was ruthless to the hard-hearted. And if I don't like how Jesus is towards me, it's something in my heart that's wrong. What happened? Well, at this point in the sermon, it was near a riot took place. He didn't ever get to point three. Every good sermon has three points in a point. And he didn't get to it. I've often wondered what point three was. But verse 23, 28, they were in a rage now. He had proved his point about prophets. The rage proved he was a prophet. And could you be one who you would tell yourself right now, I don't want to get offended by Jesus' rough and tumble style. I don't want to be one that would have been caught up in this. But Jesus gets interrupted because they wanted to show him something on the edge of the cliff. 
you know, the girl from Ireland, when we were trying to teach a city girl some country ways, she wrote me back from Ireland and said, I have a bottom of a river in Ireland I'd like to show you. I think this is what they were telling him. We've got something we want to show you. You know, I've had people tell me, I have another home I'd like for you to live in. I have another town I think you would like better. Maybe another family. But they wanted to kill him. He deserved to die now. <laughs> it was today, just like he had said. So verse 29, they take Jesus to the edge. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but I have a close friend here. He's a pastor of one of the Baptist churches, and I asked him to come preach for me at the state school chapel. I don't know how he managed to provoke the audience as bad as he did. But the chaplain stood up and told him, out of here. <laughs> yeah, that's when I wish I had been sitting in the back. Why would I sit in the front? And there's nothing more embarrassing to walk from the front chapel and leave. We were only on point one. If I called his name, you would think it's funny. He's one of those type guys. But you can be provoking and get kicked out. You don't purposely do it. You're trying to reach him. You wonder what happened here at this moment. I wish the Bible had given us more, you know, verses on this. Maybe there was too much action. No one quite saw what happened. Did Jesus struggle to get loose as they drug him like a lamb before slaughter? I mean, you wonder what happened, but they're dragging him to the cliff. We said we would tell what happened here, but no one's really sure what happened here. Verse 30 tells you all that the Bible tells us. But passing through their midst, he went his way. So you have verse 29 saying they drag him to the edge to throw him over. And 30 says he passed through them. He had to fill in the gaps. I don't think they meant to let go of their hold on him. And then it says he went to Capernaum. He didn't go home and emotionally recuperate. Oh my gosh, everybody tried to kill me. I just need some time off. I'm pushing myself too hard. It says he went to Capernaum, the next town, on the Sabbath. He got up and started teaching people. But leave it to Jesus. Listen to his words. Capernaum, he went back to the miracles they had been hearing about. Was he in a better mood? Kind of an off day in Nazareth. He nuked them, but Capernaum, he was killing with kindness. Oh, no, listen to his sermon to Capernaum. Woe to you, Capernaum. You think you're going to ascend to heaven, but you're going to go straight to hell. <laughs> Rare form, Luke 10, 15. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For the miracles that were performed in you, if they had only been done in the land of the homosexuals of Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. And they're going to be with you on judgment day, condemning you for this day. They would have remained in time, this city, if they had seen what you just saw. Matthew eleven twenty three. When we were there with Howard Payne and I saw Capernaum, it is no more. The ones that Jesus said woe to, it's woe. They're gone. You see where he headed with Capernaum. Well, I guess in a way you could say Nazareth did get a miracle. Jesus passed through them and they were unable to touch Jesus. So let's call this the untouching Jesus miracle. <laughs> Jesus' unfinished sermon in more ways than one, with them. And this is what happened in his sermon in Nazareth. And this is where we stop, but it begs the question, what could have happened and what should have happened? What was he wanting? He didn't get a finish, but I'm going to try. Because I've asked myself, I would look at this sermon and ask myself, what is he wanting from people when he insults them? What's he wanting from me? Like Jesus is on purpose insulting me. You know, the best people in my life are my critics. Sometimes you can learn the most. But Jesus, he's so different because he's all love, and yet this is how he chose to do it. So let's go here easily, gently. What could have happened? What was he wanting? Why did he make them mad on purpose? An important question, why did some people get the promises while others didn't? What does Jesus want out of them? You have to be able to answer this or we'll make the same mistake. Let's put a different ending on the story. And maybe it was this one young man named Brian, hard pain freshman. He was new. And when I preached this, he started crying out. And he started crying out so hard, he brought everybody to tears. As a freshman, the first time he began to cry out, 
And what Brian did at that moment stirred the crowd for righteousness. It did something. It put a pull. I'm seeing when I saw Brian start crying out, Lord, we want it. And he started crying with all of his heart. This was not a loser guy. This wasn't one of those guys that you just go, oh, he embarrasses me. This was a good-looking, handsome, tall, blonde, muscular guy. And at the point of the preaching of this sermon, he said, repent, repent. It's either rage or repent. He was pulling for group repentance. He was asking for a heart change. I'm not going to give God attitude. I'll humble myself and I'll take it on the terms of crumbs. If a foreign woman can figure this out and be called a dog and not get offended, how much more who tasted of the good things of God and the promise of God that I humble myself at this moment and say, I'll repent. We don't care who's bringing the message at chapel. The end goal is repent. No more bad attitudes. No more hardness of heart. We want more of God. We want the anointing. Honor us, God. We want you among us. Where are the bronze today? If one person in that audience had cried out and said, God, we repent. We repent for the sins of our fathers. Because it says, Jesus says, make up for the cup that your fathers did because they killed the prophets and you honor them. And he goes, you're hypocrites. You're like a tomb that's painted white. And you're trying to fake your way into the kingdom. And I'm seeing it just took one guy that helped me understand at this moment in the sermon, he knew what God was wanting from me. Pull from him, a group pull, letting Jesus crack down on us. I had the type of father He taught me something that they don't know in this generation. It's an older generation thing. Respect. Respect. And if you're ever going to give it to someone, give it to the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord is upon you. The anointing here is to preach. Lord, we welcome you. Lord, ridicule us if you would like. Insult us if you must. Slap us around, but I want you. But like a woman who prepares her first cake for the prophet, and like a man who will dip in the dirty water, and like dogs who eat the crumbs, we will obtain the promises of God. We will not be offended, and we will do what it takes, for this is the favorable year of the Lord. The unutilized prophet. It said with Nazareth, this is how it ends, Jesus could do no miracles. Matthew 13, 53 through 58 bears testimony. Mark 6, 1 through 6 says he could do nothing here. And sadly to say right here that what had happened in the old, with the old fathers of the faith, the same thing is happening here with these new ones listening to Jesus, to God's son himself, and history repeats itself. Are we going to let that happen?